0: The Tentative Apologist Podcast. Time to think. This time on the Tentative Apologist Podcast, I'm delighted to introduce two guests, Andrew Murtog and Adam Lee. Andrew is a Christian apologist who blogs at Soapbox Redemption on the Patheos platform. He is also the author of the 2013 book, Proof of Divine. Adam Lee is an atheist and writer living in New York. He has written articles for Alternate Salon Free Inquiry, among other sources, and he regularly blogs at Daylight Atheism, also on Patheos. Adam is the author of the 2012 book Daylight Atheism, and how's this for a cool factoid? One of Adam's articles was referenced positively in Richard Dawkins' best-selling book, The God Delusion. Now, Some years ago, Andrew and Adam developed an unlikely friendship, one which led them to co-author a book of dialogue and debate titled Meta on God, the Big Questions, and the Just City. Meta is a lively book, I've read it and indeed I've endorsed it, and it presents a conversational exchange on life's biggest questions, but it does so while retaining a friendly, ironic spirit, one which is all too rare in this age of loud voices and hardened opinions. There are two things I really appreciate about Andrew and Adam and their book. The first is the above-mentioned commitment they have to generous and friendly conversation despite some formidable ideological differences. And the second thing is their commitment to find unity in concrete ways, in particular to make a difference in matters of social justice. And the topic, the, the mission that they focused on together is to do what they can in uh, their book and in partial donation of royalties of their book to end human trafficking. Now, I really resonate with this. If I can just give a personal example. at my own blog, uh, we have a lending team for Kiva, the well-known micro-lending agency. And indeed, if you're interested, you can join it. Now, this is the slogan for the tentative apologist lending team says, we loan because debating the existence of God and the meaning of life means little if you don't lend a helping hand to those in need. That is a point on which Andrew, Adam, and I surely all agree. And on that note of agreement, we can now turn to our wide-ranging discussion on God, atheism, and the meaning of life. It's great to have you both joining us on the Tenet of Apologist podcast. We're going to begin by I want to begin by hearing a little bit about your worldviews. Now you both describe yourselves as humanists, but of a different sort. One of you is secular humanist and atheistic, the other is Christian. So Adam, why don't we begin with you? Tell me a little bit about what it means for you to be a secular humanist atheist.
1: Sure. Well, as as an atheist and a secular humanist, I believe that human beings are ultimately the the measure and the standard of value, and that it is up to us to decide what makes our lives Uh, purposeful and fulfilling and meaningful and that all all goodness in this world all justice that we can expect to receive will ultimately come from our fellow human beings
0: okay it's still i'm going to edit this out now but i'll I'll have what you just had But i just wanted to make sure it's still recording okay so what do you say andrew all our our value comes from human beings Uh, how do you respond as a christian
2: Yeah, so I would start by saying that I'm an ecumenical Christian and that I also share the label... Let me
0: just define ecumenical for those who don't know the word.
2: Yeah, so I would say ecumenical meaning I share the core beliefs of all Christians, um, the main creedal beliefs, and uh, I'm committed to those and those commonalities. Uh, Similar with humanism, a lot of commonalities that Adam and I share, um, but I would label myself as religious as the ground of those beliefs. So some similarities and differences.
0: Okay, now Adam said... All human beings are the source of value. Uh, What do you say?
2: So I I would disagree. Um, I think that um, any um, moral philosophy uh, at its bottom has a built-in assumption on the nature of humanity. And I think when you look at um, your moral theory on on a meta-ethical level, you have to say, okay, what grounds those beliefs? And then you get into, um, I think, a nuanced discussion on some of the objections of uh, if we're all just matter, and motion um, what is moral what is good and myself uh, holding that moral is objectively discovered uh, by the nature of God.
0: Okay morality is objectively discovered by the nature of God Adam you obviously disagree uh, why do you think well let, let, let's go back to, to your statement that the moral value is found in the individual does that not lead to a radical relativism because every individual can decide for themselves what is
1: morally good? I think there has to be um, a balancing point between individual freedom and collective action. Now obviously, I, I think that human beings, individual human beings should be given the maximum possible freedom to decide for themselves what they want to do with their existence and what makes their lives meaningful. But when human beings come together to create a community, to create a society, it won't work if everyone is doing their own thing without regard to others. So there has to be some mechanism for consensus building, for democratic agreement, so that people can decide on a, on a bare minimum set of moral standards that everyone agrees to follow for the, for the collective good and to ma- in a way to maximize their individual freedom to seek their own personal visions of the good. We, we agree to live together in community cooperatively.
0: Uh, now, a critic might push back and say that we're kind of shifting terms, that so we begin by saying, well, morality is relative to the individual. But collectively, there may be pragmatic or practical reasons for the person and the collective to act in a certain way in order to achieve certain goods that they as individuals desire, but that doesn't make that morally good, it just means it's practical to act in that way. But if a particular individual in that society decides, I don't share those collective interests, there's nothing morally wrong with that individual subverting those collective interests to their own individual interests. The example being you know, the serial killer, let's say, who leads, uh, works on Wall Street by day as a respected member of the community and at night kills people in the back alleys of New York City. Uh, would you say that, yeah, relative to that individual's interests? They just happen not to share the collective interests, so they're still good relative to
1: their interests. Or would you say that they're objectively doing something evil? I would. I would say that would be objectively wrong. And my reasoning for that is that there has to be there has to be a consistent standard that all people agree to follow for the good of all. And you know, even the serial killer does not want to be randomly killed on the street. He does not want to live in a society where that is the governing principle. And I, you know, that's obviously an extreme case. But I think in general it works the same way in that most people do not want to live under a standard where they could be harmed by others at any time without recourse. I think it all people, it benefits all people to have these rules that are applied consistently, even if it limits some individual freedoms, it results in a better outcome for everyone.
0: One last question, and then I'm gonna turn back to you, Andrew. Uh, the question is, what about a person, who, let's say who's a sadomasochist, and they actually enjoy being having pain inflicted upon themselves does that now, relative to their interests, give them a moral mandate to be able to inflict pain on others relative to
1: their interests? And well, this, this gets into you know the, the golden rule, which is treat others as you would want to be treated. Possibly does not work for certain edge cases because of like like the one you described. I think a better moral principle is treat others the way that they want to be treated. So even if the sadomasochist enjoys inflicting pain on others you know, he would he would hopefully would recognize that other people do not share that interest and that if he wants to pursue his own vision of the good in whatever consensual way he might seek out, he should still recognize that others do not feel the same and that just as he does not want them to act in ways that prevent him from seeking his vision of the good, he should allow others the same freedom to choose.
0: One could say uh, then he shouldn't torture others because they don't want to be tortured, but they should torture him because he wants to be tortured. Consensually okay right uh, Now I've, I've been picking on you a yeah. little bit. so I'm going to turn back to you, Andrew and I wanted to ask about the relationship between morality and God because there's this very old objection to this idea that morality can somehow be identified with God and the divine nature and it's called the Euthyphro dilemma. Mm-hmm. So take it you're familiar with the Euthyphro dilemma. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's I'll just give a brief, brief statement and then you can just offer your response to it. So the, the idea is uh, the, it begins with a rhetorical question which is, Is the right right because God commands it so, or does he command it so because it is right? Uh, If the former, then morality is arbitrary because it's rooted in God's arbitrary commands. If the latter, then in fact God is simply recognizing what is right, but the right itself, the morally right, exists independently of God, and you don't need God. So the dilemma being, either you end up making morality arbitrary if it's dependent upon God's Willing it to be so or it is independent of God in which case you don't need God to recognize their of morality So how would you respond?
2: Right so I I see that as a false dilemma and Excuse me in the aristotelian framework. God uh, is Being itself the ground of all being and goodness. So being goodness and truth are one in God's nature And so when we reason morally or we reason in, in any way we can from nature itself Presume in some finite way what is good, and so um, to some of Adam's points, I, I would agree. We can empirically um, test um, pra- uh, pragmatically and consequentially what are certain endpoints, but they all rest on a fundamental assumption of what is good, and so that's my big uh, beef, I, I, I guess, with uh, with naturalism is is to talk about that objectivity having a source or a ground, and so I see uh, God as the the ground of all being and goodness, and so.
0: Okay. Uh, Do you find that to be a satisfactory response, or do you think, Adam, that that there is a problem with identifying the morality with the nature of God?
1: I tend to think that morality exists in virtue of the type of beings we are, and that there are certain things that are good for all human beings, and there are certain things that are bad for all human beings. And whether or not there is a God, I, I would almost consider the existence of such a being irrelevant to morality. I think if there is a creator... Being out there. He could have created us with different needs such that different things would be good or bad for us. But given the nature we have as human beings God could not command something different. He could not say that it is good to give people arsenic instead of food, for example, because arsenic is poisonous to us. So I think the, the existence of a creator giving commands is basically irrelevant to morality. I think morality exists just because of the nature that we have and the type of beings we are. Now you're both very thoughtful
0: individuals, and I know that you wrestle with the objections to your worldview. Uh, so what I want to hear from you is what is, for you, the single biggest objection to your worldview? I don't know if it keeps you up at night or if it's just sort of this little pebble in your shoe that's kind of bothering you, but is there something that you would identify over any other issue that is the biggest challenge intellectually or emotionally or otherwise that you face to your worldview? We'll start with you, Andrew.
2: I would say the most uh, um, meaningful objection <clears throat> from a emotional and, and just practical sense is the problem of evil and suffering. I think all um, believers have asked themselves these questions. I think it's filled in the scriptures, and I think it's filled daily when you look at both natural evil um, and the problem of evil as a whole. Um, even with the logical defenses that are made, which I think are sufficient, it still leaves a, uh, a very existentially... Almost emotionally unsatisfying question that I think uh, believers uh, wrestle with and non-believers call into account. So this is to me a very um, serious and ongoing issue for for all. Uh,
0: so I'm going to follow up on that. Then, there Christians have have sometimes, often, said of atheists that, well, atheism is a fundamentally irrational position. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, I wrote a, a book talking about that very topic uh, challenging it in fact that assumption uh, do you think that that the, the the nature of evil the degree and intensity of suffering in the world and its distribution provides a reasonable objection to the truth of Christianity and theism more generally
2: I don't think uh, I don't think philosophically um, to say evil exists is to um, discredit God's existence I think it actually ontologically grounds evil and goodness as separate things and evil being a privation of good. Um, and so when you look at the free will defense um, and you say, okay, well, it's a violation of, of, our, of our doing the good that is evil or privation. I think that's logically satisfying. You can say that is evil. I think when you talk about natural evil, um, it gets very uh, I think nuanced where you say, why did a two-year-old die of cancer? Um, I think that's when it gets more tricky.
0: Yeah, that's for sure, especially if it's your two-year-old, I imagine, right? It's one thing when, when, I mean, I think often philosophers, they talk about evil as this abstract quantity in the world, and yet we only encounter evil in particular times and places, and when it hits those we love, it certainly brings a new resonance to the difficulty. Adam, so what, what's the biggest challenge you face to atheism?
1: Something I wonder about is whether we need whether human beings might need religion as a source of, of hope and optimism and a reason to persevere in the face of what seems like overwhelming odds I mean I think I've always said both the, the positive and the negative side of atheism is that it says we are we're all on our own every every good that we expect to receive we have to trust in our own fellow human beings to give it to us if we don't save ourselves no one is coming from outside to do it for us and I wonder if there are certain people who might not find that a very, a very discouraging, very bleak um, thing to say, because looking around at the state of the world, you might say, well, we are not doing a very good job of saving ourselves. Maybe if if there is no higher power coming to save us from ourselves, maybe we have no hope for the future. I feel like there is someone who takes that position with respect to me. I, I can't prove them wrong. I can't, I can't tell them that the good will always triumph. I can't give them that assurance because I can't prove it to myself.
0: So uh, that makes me think, on on the one hand, I I appreciate what you said, and and it it reminds me of that famous essay by A Free Man's Worship, I believe it is, by Bertrand Russell, where he talked about only in the face of unyielding despair can man's Mm -hmm. world henceforth safely be built, something like that. So it's this very uh, sort of bleak picture of the world. On the other hand, there are other atheists who say, you know, I'm, uh, they're not just atheists, they're anti-theists, and they're saying, you know what, actually it's not only that I believe God doesn't exist, but that it's a really good thing that God doesn't exist, because if God did exist, the world would be a monstrous place uh, probably one of the most famous examples is uh, the late Christopher Hitchens so um, he would describe living in the world that God, uh, living in a world with God as like living in a celestial North Korea, mm. where, where there's this, this coercive power watching everything you do and will hold you to account. And so he would uh, did argue that he felt liberated in an atheistic world. Um, do you think that that offers a response to the atheist dilemma that
1: actually the cup is half full, not half empty? Oh yeah, I think you could definitely choose to view it that way. And I think this is also heavily dependent on, on the type of God that you might believe in and what your specific theology says. You now if there is a theology that says that all human beings will eventually go to heaven all evil will eventually be, you know, all tears will eventually be wiped away, everything will be reconciled, and this existence is just a blip before an in, infinite period of happiness. Well, I can, I can see the appeal of that worldview. On the other hand, the sort of what you might call the traditional orthodox or fundamentalist Christian picture, which holds that the majority of humanity will end up condemned to eternal conscious torture, and then only a tiny minority We'll be saved and we'll end up in heaven. You know, as, as Jesus says in the New Testament, narrow is the road to life and there are few who find it. And wide is the road to destruction. And there are many who go down it. And to think that that will be the end state of the cosmos forever, billions of people suffering torture without relief or rest or hope, that, that I think is the most nightmarish vision that humans have ever come up
2: with. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Andrew? You, you know, I think it's a good point, actually. And I think a lot of <clears throat> Christians are taught only a traditional version of hell. And I think there's a lively debate, as you know, Randall in theology and philosophical theology right now about annihilationism, um, and the idea of universalism. And so I think to Adam's point, um, the theology that we do endorse, um, whether it's Christianity, Islam, uh, Judaism, um, translate into, into practical ethics and how we look and view as others. So it's, I think it's a good point.
0: Now there was a... I want to ask this next question because you guys both have young children uh, and I have a, a daughter in, in her teens so this is a question I, I've thought a lot about and I suspect you have as well. Uh, and I'm gonna back up to, to the year 1998. Nicholas Humphrey, I believe his name was, he delivered the Amnesty International lecture for that year uh, and he comes from what would become the new atheist kind of perspective, quite hostile to religion and he described uh, in a way that would really come to echo Richard Dawkins, that people who raise their children with a religious worldview are committing a kind of cognitive child abuse. And, and he actually argued in an Amnesty International lecture the, the prospect of, of removing children from the tutelage of their religious parents because their, their minds are being corrupted. It was kind of a very challenging lecture and, and certainly a lot I disagree with. But he does kind of throw down the gauntlet on the question how do you raise your children in a way that is not brainwashing them but also communicating something to them of the fundamental convictions of your worldview so i'd like to maybe share with you adam hear a little bit more about have have you thought about how, how do you convey to your child as he grows up the values that you hold
1: and the belief this is this is a challenge for me and it's something i've thought a lot about because obviously i do want to communicate my values to my son but on the other hand I don't want to teach him that I am the all-powerful authority and I should always be obeyed or believed without question. Because I am sure that I am not 100% right either. I'm sure there are beliefs I hold that are mistaken or immoral. And I want my son to have the chance to make up his own mind about that. You know, if he thinks I'm wrong, then I want to give him the freedom to come to his own conclusions about it. But on the other hand, obviously I do, you know, there's that famous saying, a liberal is a man who's too broad-minded to take his own side in a quarrel. Mm I do have some confidence in the values that I have put together, and I want to explain to my son what I believe and why, and hopefully if my arguments are good ones, he will make up his mind that I'm, you know, he will come to agree with me as a result of making up his own mind about them. I think really the the crucial point of this is do we allow our children to know about the existence of alternative worldviews? You know, we talked on the way over about this documentary film called One of Us about children who grow up in the ultra-Orthodox Hasidic Jewish communities of Brooklyn and one of the fundamental tenets of that religion is extreme isolation from modern society to the extent that they do not ever want their people to use the internet because there is so much information that they don't control they find that idea deeply damaging to their faith I want my son to learn about all the religions and all the worldviews and all the belief systems of the world because I think there are, there are some good things to take away from each of them And I want to give him the freedom to pick what he thinks is best, hopefully guided by the values I have taught him, but I don't think it's a job as a parent to make our our sons and our daughters into ideological carbon
2: copies of ourselves.
0: A lot there I'm certainly sympathetic with. How about you, Andrew? Anything
2: you disagree with? I actually completely agree with Adam's approach, and I I wrote about um, Einstein talking about a holy curiosity. And uh, Einstein obviously was not a traditional theist, but what I really appreciated him, is, is a sense of metaphysical speculation, curiosity, and humility. And uh, spe- specifically with the big question. So I, like Adam, I'm certainly uh, biased towards my worldview, um, but I'm ever seeking uh, and always opening uh, to inquiry. And I think I want to embark those values with my children. And that's, that's I definitely um, raise them from the Christian perspective, but also um, happily embrace science, skepticism, um, discuss multiple views of of pluralism so uh, but I guide them with what I believe is uh, it is true and so I think that's the biggest thing is a spirit of critical inquiry and uh, and and a truth-seeking method uh, for them to find uh, their own way
0: now one of the things I I really appreciate about your book Meta uh, which of course I I read last year and I gave an endorsement to is that in in a, a world of very Polarized opposition and a lot of loud voices and hardened opinions. That uh, especially on something as potentially contentious as religion versus secularism, God versus atheism. That that there is a refreshing uh, openness and vulnerability and just a spirit or friendliness to your conversation. So, Adam, start with you. Could you just say something about your perspective on the the way that that in the sort of new atheist and christian context things have, have gotten very heated and then how, how you maybe quite intentional about offering a different way
1: yeah i think the initial phase of the new atheist movement wasn't in, in some respects an understandable reaction to a to a political program of you know of the dominance of religion on, especially under the george w bush era in america there was this resurgence of very highly politicized fundamentalist religion and this idea that we we know the best for everyone, and that was, you know, echoed in the Islamic world, too. And I think the New Atheist Movement was a valuable and important corrective to that notion, the idea that we we have our own worldview that is worth defending and that we can take a stand for. I think where this goes wrong is if it it turns into harmful dogmatism, which I think is something that can exist in any worldview, atheist or Christian. I would personally consider it a moral failing on my part if I was not able to be friends with someone who didn't believe exactly the same things as me. Because I think when when a worldview curdles into tribalism in that way, when you sense that my, my in-group knows the whole truth and everyone else is completely wrong, that is when you get into these cultic worldviews of, well, my leaders can do no wrong, my side is always right, whatever crimes we commit can be overlooked in virtue of the greater good. And if we can recognize those traits as harmful when other belief systems hold them, we have to accept that it's equally harmful when we hold them. So we have to... Pay attention to the you know this tendency of tribalism, which is always lurking. We have to take conscious steps to counteract it, to reach out across the divide, and to talk to people and maintain friendships with people who may not agree with us on things, even things that we think are important. Because if you are mistaken about something, that's the only way you're ever going to find out. You know, you're in that way. Your worst critic can be your best friend.
0: Well, well stated, uh, Andrew. I guess to, to to come back on a similar topic for you. I mean, I grew up in the church there certainly was a lot of suspicion of atheists and often christians would appeal to some very stark binary language such as in the gospel of john where jesus will talk about people of the lie versus people of truth things like that and then it's easy to put yourself in the category of the people of truth and view these other people as the outsider to be suspicious of and so on So can you offer both how you think Christians have unfortunately been complicit in what Adam described during the George W. Bush era, and also how you find sources, resources in your own Christian tradition to overcome that and embark on a more helpful uh, interaction and discussion with those with whom you disagree?
2: Yeah, I actually, um, from an evolutionary psychology point of view, it's interesting when you read, um, I think it was Josh Green's Moral Tribes, you talk about the evolutionary basis and history of why tribalism exists and still exists um, socially and in our brains and just how we construct ourselves. There's comfort in, in the us versus them. There's, there's mm-hmm. pride and yeah. it exists loudly in religious and political circles and um, it really is the enemy of, of, of truth-seeking to Adam's point. Um, if we all are just celebrating how great we are and we find mm-hmm. truth in our view, um, lots of funny and bad things can, can happen, and, uh, and everything can be silenced, and uh, uh, so horrible things happen. So I think for me, um, truth-seeking is uh, is enhanced. Um, when I look at my library, there's, there's new atheist books, there's Christian books, there's science books. For me, truth um, it is fostered in an environment of pluralistic views and friendships with the opposing sides. And then uh, not only that, just from an intellectual perspective, but practically... Um, to break down walls and to celebrate um, around our common cause, which is ending human trafficking, um, there still exists slavery in the world. And uh, when Martin Luther King was doing his uh, dramatic change, um, there were atheists, there were Jews, there were Catholics, um, and they said, hey, let's, let's stand for, um, for justice. And so for me, it's, uh, it's celebrating intellectually um, all these different pluralistic views, um, open to uh, to criticism, finding truth, and then uh, expressing those shared commonalities where we can really, um, I think, improve not only as Christians, but outside of, uh, of Christian camps, all religious views, all political views. So my two cents there.
0: I appreciate you you're talking about the ethical concerns that you guys have to practically make a difference in the world. I think it's worth pointing out that yeah, the world of your book part of them are going to fight that very issue right of, of human trafficking trafficking and i'd like to come to you adam and ask why that particular topic and and are there any other topics that you think christians and atheists can can get together in common cause and on ethical issues to
1: even if we disagree about something things change the world
0: in other good ways
1: oh yeah i mean i think there are Obviously, there is no shortage of good causes out there. We could have come together to work on, you know, um, human trafficking. I think is an interesting one because it's important because many people still don't realize it's such a problem. I think a lot of people think a slave think of slavery as something that happened in the past and now it's over and done with. We don't have to worry about it. anymore.
0: We fought the Civil War, the abolition of the slaves, and the British Empire is well, all we, gone. We, we solved this,
1: yeah, but we haven't solved it, and I think that kind of consciousness raising that this is still very much a problem that exists in the world is something that more people need to be aware of and it's not just sex trafficking although that's the obvious example but there are a lot of cases of people who are being trafficked for just what we would think of as ordinary kinds of labor you know picking crops or or fishing or sewing clothes just these jobs that people are are kept in in conditions no better than slaves in the past and I think the fact that so many people are unaware this is a problem allows it to flourish so, the more, the more awareness we bring to this issue, hopefully that will, that will inspire a very necessary counter-reaction.
0: Yeah, excellent. Well stated. I think often uh, when Christians and atheists get into these debates and just always focusing on disagreement on some core issues, we kind of forget at the other end all these things that we agree on in terms of common cause and purpose. And uh, if we just focus on that a little bit more, I think not only would we begin to understand one another a little more, we'd actually begin to change the world.
2: Yeah, that's funny. I, uh, I joke, Adam and I were, we were at the pub last night and we are enjoying each other's company. We hang out at each other's houses. We're friends. And I joke, though, though Adam and I uh, disagree on the accounting of our brand and mm-hmm. the meta-ethics, the metaphysics, what have you, um, the brand itself, our endeavor um, is, is to change the world. And so, um, so I'm enthused that we can be friends and do that. And as I joke about in the book, we'll debate about the metaphysics on the ride over.
1: Sounds good. Adam, any last words? Uh, no. I think I think Andrew has pretty much summed it up. But yes, I I agree that I think we we agree on far more than we disagree on, and it's so easy for that fact to be obscured because the differences between groups of people are so easy to to blow up, to blow up out of proportion, and to think. The things that divide us are more important or loom larger than things that bring us together. And I think that is that is very much not the case, and we need all the reminders of that that we can get.
0: And I'll say an amen to that. Thanks, guys. Well, that's it for this episode of the Tentative Apologist podcast. For more episodes of the podcast, you can visit us online at randallrauser.com.